Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to this bonus episode of Cape Up. The National Museum for African American History and Culture opens Saturday in Washington, D.C., and its founding director, Lonnie Bunch, is my guest. We talk about how the museum went from idea to completion, how he went about gathering the artifacts that tell the history of a people and a nation, and what happened when he visited a man claiming to have possessions of Harriet Tubman. And literally, I am so jaded, I'm saying, what am I doing here? He pulled he pulled out one box, not a big box, one box. And he starts out by pulling pictures of Harry Tubman's funeral that no one had ever seen. Oh, he's got my attention. If there's an overall message of the museum, it is this from Lonnie Bunch. This is a story that is too big to be in the hands of one community. It really is the story that has shaped us all. Hear him say that and more right now. Lonnie Bunch, thank you so much for being on Cape Up and having us in to your fabulous new museum. Thank you. Welcome. How, how does it feel to finally have this day here with the museum opening? It is unbelievably humbling because so many people contributed to this and that in many ways, I always knew this day would happen. But that's because I'm good at fooling myself. <laughs> <laughs> but how many years did it, did it take? It took more than 10 years to... Well, it's taken 11 years since I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when the whole process began. Um, but so therefore, it's been the longest time you could ask people to keep working on something until they see the fruits of their labor. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about the, the museum itself. Back in 2012, you told The Washington Post... I want people to realize this is who we are as Americans. I'm not creating an African-American museum just for African-Americans. Given everything that we've been through since you said that, do you think people realize this now? I think that now there's a real the realization that everybody is shaped by this story and that what happens in a small town outside of St. Louis shapes what you do in San Francisco and New York. So for me, this has really been a chance to say, this is a story that is too big to be in the hands of one community. It really is the story that has shaped us all. And I think people now see that. And that's part of the excitement that's happening now as a result of people getting getting very pleased that the museum is about to open. Mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey once said to me that, you don't know the wave that's going to hit you. And just when I walked out there and literally saw 350 people in an auditorium that's always been empty, um, suddenly I began to understand that, yep, my life is changing. And as a result of somebody who prefers to be behind the scenes, I'm much more visible than I ever thought I would be. And I just have to learn to get used to that. I was going to say, how comfortable is that for you? I mean, you're you're Not you're a curator. Right. You're somebody who's you know, digging into basements and attics. That's right. And Let me like stand that. in the corner and write my book or give a lecture. You know, um, so this is really tough for me. But you know, first of all, I know it's part of the job. You know, but secondly, it also really does speak to the excitement around this museum, around this subject. And so I'm just going to have to get used to it. Mm-hmm. My daughters tell me, smile and enjoy it. <laughs> and then there's a second wave that's going to hit you. And that is once people start cycling through the museum and then they start posting their reactions, they start sending in the letters, leaving the phone calls. And all that work, a decade's worth of work, is going to be reflected back at you 
what's the one thing you're hoping you will hear from the people who come to this museum? That by going through the museum, by wrestling with the questions we raise, that they're changed. That they understand that they're part of a bigger story or they understand that even if you were white Southerners who grew up in Texas in the 1970s, the story of slavery is still your story as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I interviewed Franklin Sermons, who's the director of the Prez Art Museum in Miami. You're shaking your head. You know exactly who he is, and he'll be on a future episode of K-Pop. But one of the things we talked about was the idea of a 21st century museum and, and how excited he was to be able in Miami to create that from scratch. You're doing the same you're doing the same thing here. And one of the things he said was that he views his museum as a town square, not something that's walled off and separate from the community, but something that is a part of the community. How do you how do you view your own museum in that light? I felt very strongly that I needed to wrestle with what a 21st century museum should be. And what I realized is that a 21st century museum can't be a community center, but it could be at the center of its community. So for us, being in Washington, that means we have a national community as well as a local community. So it was crucial to recognize that this has to be that safe place where people can debate important issues. One of the great joys of the Smithsonian is we're the great convener. We can call any group, anybody to come and wrestle with any question. So for me, the museum's job is to use the history to contextualize today, but to make sure we bring together people so that we can actually find a way to give history as a tool tell people live their lives. Mm -hmm. And in a way of telling that history and telling these stories is through museum exhibits and the, and the artifacts. How did you go about finding all of the things that populate all the floors of this museum? Everybody said to me when I came, oh my God, your biggest problem is raising money. I knew the biggest problem was finding the collections. Because even if you made it the most technologically sophisticated museum in the world, it would fail at the Smithsonian. Because they come here to see the Wright Flyer, the Ruby Slipper, the Greensboro Lunch Counter. So it was crucial for us to figure out, was I right when I said that all of the 20th century, most of the 19th century, and piece of the 18th century were still in the basements, trunks, and attics of people's homes. And so that worked. We went around the country, stole the idea from Antique Roadshow, <laughs> asked people to bring out their stuff. We didn't take it. We helped them preserve Grandma's old shawl, that wonderful 19th century photograph. But what happened is then people would get excited and they'd say, well, do you want it? And we would say, give it to local museums first. Then if it was really significant, it came back to D.C. Huh. And that then got us visibility. Because if you do it and maybe 300 people show up, but it's in the front page of the Charleston Courier or whatever. And so then people began to call us and say, I have this, I have that. And so ultimately we were able to collect 40,000 objects of which 4,000 will be on display in the museum. Incredible. What was the one phone call or email or, or message about an artifact that took your breath away? I mean, I know for me, if I got a phone call that said, we have Harriet Tubman Shawl, I'd pass out. Yeah, well, I did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because I really believe when I got that call that the guide was wrong. There's no way he had Harriet Tubman material. I just knew that. As a 19th century historian, I was so sure. And, and I said to my staff, we shouldn't go. And they said, well, think about it. So I said to the guy, I said, you know, he was a, he was a great collector. I said, I'll come. So we go to Philadelphia, and literally, I am so jaded. I'm saying, oh, man, what am I doing here? He pulled, he pulled out one box, not a big box, one box. And he starts out by pulling pictures of Harry Tubman's funeral that no one had ever seen. 
Well, he's got my attention. And by the time, and he'd pull out things that would be so small. He pulled out a knife and fork that Harriet Tubman made that she would carry with her when she went into the South to free the enslaved. And then he pulls out this hymnal that had all those spirituals that she used to sing. And Harriet couldn't read, but she had that hymnal for 50 years about, you know, what she would say, swing low, sweet chariot, or steal away Jesus. That took my breath away. How do, you, how do you not cry? Oh, how I do, cry all the time. They call me Mr. Tissue. I mean, basically, I mean, the reality is that these things are unbelievably moving. And so what I find more than anything else is so humbling that people trust us. Mm. They trust us with not the stuff, but their lives, their family story. That's what I tell my staff all the time. Treat this with respect because what you have is you get to hold people's culture in your hands. One of the things at a, at a dinner that I went to um, when you were drumming up interest in the museum and you had the artifacts there, you had Harriet Tubman Shaw, there were things you had there that I hadn't considered were part of the African-American story. Several sort of cases made of metal or of leather where freed slaves kept their freedom papers. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the job is to help people realize that they all have history and that things in their house may not come to the Smithsonian, but they need to be preserved because they're part of this. And for me, the, that Freedom Paper story just may be the one that moves me the most. Um, this is a man who lived in Loudoun County, Virginia, just 30 miles away, and he gained his freedom in the 1850s, and he was told, this is the only way you're going to prove you're free. So suddenly he had to carry it everywhere, and he was terrified. What if I ripped it or I lost it or it sweated and I tore it? So he actually made what he called a tin wallet. He made a handmade tin wallet, and he would put this in there every morning, carry it with him during the day, and at night he would come home and take it out and tell the family, this is the key to our future. And to have something as small as that, um, you know, yes, that's not a huge slave cabin, but in some ways that story is even richer because it helps us understand how do you humanize those stories. Well, by telling the story of a particular family is the best way to do that. And how do you want people to experience this museum? When they walk into those doors, where do you think they should go first? I think that if I had my druthers, I'd have people go downstairs to the history galleries to get a kind of narrative, to get a kind of overview so that you can understand how this history has swept the country from the you know 17th century on. But then I'd go upstairs and I'd tap my toes to Duke Ellington or Louis Armstrong or something like that. That's what I try to do. And, you know, I learned two things about you that we have in common, kind of. First, your birthday is the same, same day as my mother's. Oh, no kidding. Yes. And then you were born in Newark. Yes, indeed. So was I. No kidding. Yeah, where did you, where did you live? I was born at Presbyterian Hospital, lived on Jelloth Avenue until I was five, and then we moved to Belleville. Ah, and I think I'm going to have to check with my mother because mine was Children's Hospital, but it may have also been called Presbyterian Hospital. It was Hospital. Presbyterian. We were born in the same, same hospital. hospital. Yep. It's this weird little world. <laughs> I'm talking about the six degrees <laughs> of separation. Um, I know we, we people are coming in and out, and we got we got to go, but... I found an incredible quote that so resonated with me. I'm going to read it to you. It's not about not being afraid. It's about recognizing you are afraid and still stepping ahead. Who said that? Sounds like something my father said. I think that the biggest part of this job was 
to make people believe that this could happen. But what it really meant is that I had to find ways to believe. We didn't have all the money. So what I did is, well, let's make the hole anyway. Because I knew that Congress wouldn't let a hole stand next to the Washington Monument. So in some ways, we took calculated risks to get this thing done. And so I'm real pleased that we did that. Lonnie Bunch, thank you very much. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you. From one kid from Presbyterian Hospital to another. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Jonathan. In the interview you just heard, Lonnie Bunch spoke about how history is still in people's homes. Was I right when I said that all the 20th century, most of the 19th century, and piece of the 18th century were still in the basements, trunks, and attics of people's homes? As part of our reporting on the opening of the museum, the Washington Post invited people across the country to share the objects that tell their own experience of black history. In our new podcast, Historically Black, a co-production with APM Reports, you can hear about some of the objects and the stories behind them. My name is James McKissick, and the object that I submitted was a slave deed of sale for my great-great-grandfather. The object that I submitted is a picture of my grandmother walking down the street in Hampton, Virginia, on her way to Langley Airfield, where she worked as a human computer in 1943. Want to know more? You can find Historically Black on iTunes and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also see more stories on WashingtonPost.com slash Historically Black, or see all of our coverage on the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture on the Washington Post's website. Wow. Wow. Wow.